saying. I've been shot and killed. It will be a day I never forget. I remember having conversations with my dad about him losing friends and officers in the line of duty. I have heard all the stories you can think of, but I've always had such a hard time with how the suspect is dealt with. Not that I didn't think there should be justice served, but my heart always ached for those who don't know Jesus. Their actions being a reflection of that. A couple of days ago, I asked Anne three questions that I would like to pose to you right now. I'm not going to invite you to give an answer out loud, but I do want you to answer this question or these questions in your mind. The first is this. What is the most awe-inspiring or inspirational experience you ever had? Was there a place that you went, an event that you intended, an encounter that filled your heart with awe? What is that most awe-inspiring or inspirational experience? Second question. Who is the one person you would most like to remove from your life? Ooh. <laughs> All right, I said no, 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 no out loud, Casey. <laughs> Who is that one person that you would most like, you know, it would just be better if I didn't have to deal with them or her? All right. Let me move on before fights break out. (laughs) Third and final question. Who is the person or persons that you would rearrange your life in order to be with him or her or them? Maybe it's a spouse. Maybe it's a grandchild. Maybe it's a great-grandmother. Who is that one person or persons that you would rearrange your life in order to be with them? Now, these three questions seemed rather random as Anne received them this week. Until I told her that the heart of each of those questions can be seen in the characters of today's scripture. The first focus that we can see about the way a person viewed Christ, the first focus on Christ can be seen in the Magi. Because the Magi focused on Christ as a novelty to be visited. That's the question about that awe-inspiring event. That thing that you enjoyed at the moment... But you left it behind. You have, mem- you have fond memories of that moment, of that experience, of that place. But that place really did not have a lasting impact upon your life. Because the Magi saw Christ, but they saw him as a novelty. Something to visit. Someone to experience. 
But at the end it says, but then they went away back to their own country. You know, we don't have much definitive information about the Magi. These are characters that there has been a lot of speculation. There are a lot, there is a lot of assumption because only Matthew tells us of these visitors. Magi is actually the root for the word in our language, magic. But that does not mean that they were sleight of hand or did card tricks. It's that sense of wonder of something that is out there. We don't know where they came from. We don't know what their country of origin was. The scripture simply says they came from somewhere over in the east. And that's as specific as we have as to who they were and where they came from. But just like the Egyptians who challenged Moses and Aaron, the Persians, the Babylonians, and the Chaldeans all included these spiritual advisors who were near to the king, but not part of the royal family. If you were to read in your Bible, in Jeremiah chapter 29, verse 13, it, uses, it calls them the chief officers of the king of Babylon. Officers, but not part of the family. If you look in the Old Testament book of Daniel, we, we read about these advisors in chapters 2, 4, and 5, where they use terms like the wise men, the magicians, the enchanters, the sorcerers, the Chaldeans, and the astrologers. So many different words because it's hard to say this is exactly who or what they were. It's almost universally concluded that they were not royalty, but they did have access to palaces. These were a very honored envoy as they were granted access into Herod's kingdom as well. And while we don't know much about them, much has been uh, said that are popular misconceptions about the wise men. Because the Christmas tradition tries to make sense out of what very little is said, there are legendary details that have crept into our minds. We don't know how many magi there were. Matthew refers to them in the plural, so we know it's more than one. But he doesn't say how many. We read that they gave three gifts, but some traditions say as an entourage, there would have been at least a dozen of them who traveled together. We don't know how many. Matthew does not give their names, and so we rely upon tradition. A, a tradition, we don't know how it originated, that their names were Melchior, Casper, and Belshazzar. Now, if we don't know how many there were, we don't know that those were their names because there could be nine missing names. We don't know how many, we don't know who they were. We also have a misconception that they had followed the star each step of their way. The lengthy journey from Babylon or Persia or wherever it was in the east would have taken several weeks. And the star in Matthew's account guides the wise men only on the last leg of their journey. The star guides them from Jerusalem to Bethlehem. 
at the start of the story, where they left weeks earlier, they came to Jerusalem because they believed that the new star is a sign of a new Jewish king. Now, if they came from Babylon, remember the Babylonian captivity? Jews were taken to Babylon, Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and they were taken to captivity in Babylon. And then later, under Nehemiah, many left to go rebuild Jerusalem. I should probably say back this way. They left the east of Babylon back to Jerusalem to rebuild, but not all of the Jews returned to Israel. So some Jewish people still stayed in Babylon, and so the advisors to the king would have been aware of the Jewish scriptures along with all of the other gods of Babylon. And as these advisors were studying all of the religious writings of all of the religions of the empire, they read that Jerusalem, there would be a new Jewish king. They saw a star. They said, let's head to Jerusalem and see if we can find this king. And then this star moved them from Jerusalem to Bethlehem. The fourth misconception we have, and it was even in the film that we just saw, is that uh, you may have heard speculation that the shepherds in Luke find Jesus in a manger. But the magi come to a house in verse 11 of today's text. But in the video, they came into the house and Jesus was still in a manger. So we don't know exactly how long Jesus' family stayed in Bethlehem for the census. Unless Joseph found work as a construction day laborer, it's very unlikely that he would have brought all of his tools from Nazareth to Bethlehem if they were just going for a few days. You know, maybe she's going to give birth. We'll, we'll stay. We'll present the baby for his circumcision. And then we will return. I'm sure he didn't bring all of his tools on that journey. We read that there was no room in the inn in Luke's account. And when we read of an inn, we think of a bed and breakfast, or we think of a hostel, or of a motel. But would it surprise you to know that the word that is translated in, in Luke chapter 2, is the same word used to describe the upper room where Jesus had the Last Supper with his disciples. It's the dwelling place, the place of respite. So it wasn't necessarily a motel as we would think. There is no mention of an innkeeper. All we read is that he was in the manger because there was no room in the dwelling place. Well, it's very possible that the people in the house moved some things around so that Mary and the babe were in the house the very next morning. So it could have happened immediately. Personally, I think that Mary, Joseph, and Jesus stayed near Jerusalem until his circumcision rites on the eighth day and Mary's purification according to their religious laws. So I conclude that Jesus is somewhere between a week and a year old 
when these magi arrive. But let's go back to the guests who are visiting Jesus. The guests who see him as um, someone worth visiting. He's a novelty. They have left on a quest in verses 9 and 10 says that they they ask around Jerusalem. In verse 3, Herod gathers together his advisors. Then he summons the Magi into a private meeting. Then he dispatches these Magi to go to Bethlehem and to find the child, which I believe explains a process that would have taken several days. So I don't believe the Magi arrived the first night. Somewhere between a week and a year is my best speculation. But notice in verses 11 and 12 of Matthew chapter 2, their arrival, their adoration, and their exit all happened within two verses. We don't know how long they stayed. We don't know how long their worship and their giving of gifts lasted. I would assume that if they took several weeks to get there, they didn't leave after 30 minutes. We don't know how long they stayed, but I would... They arrived, they worshipped, and they returned. All within two verses. I guess we could summarize it this way. They came, they saw, they bought the t-shirt, and then they went home. Now... Maybe it was some sort of a cloak rather than a t-shirt, but it was, it was an experience for them. It was a novelty. I, I'm not diminishing. They are extravagant gifts that they give to the child. I'm not diminishing that they bow down in worship to this child. But then they went away and they went home. Some of you may have visited the tomb of the unknown soldier. Some of you may have visited a military cemetery. It's a serious place. It's a place of reflection. It's a place of thought. It's a place of appreciation. But at the end of the tour, you go home. And I believe these wise men came from far away they visited the novelty. They behaved appropriately. They, be, they behaved honorably. And then they went home. There's no mention in the rest of Scripture of any change that happened in the lives of the Magi after they walked away from the child. And while I see these Magi as tourists, we are then introduced to a second focus. Because Herod focused on Christ, not as a novelty, but Herod focused on Christ as a nuisance to be eliminated. He didn't worship, he didn't pay honor, he didn't give gifts. The only thing we know about Herod is he wanted to get rid of that one that's a nuisance to my way of life. I've entitled the section of verses, and the Oscar goes to, because I think Herod here is playing the role of a politician. He is a play actor. He doesn't show his cards as long as there still may be a play to be made. 
And so he doesn't show his cards. He doesn't indicate where his heart really is. He's simply gathering facts from his advisors. He's interacting with these guests. And he's playing all of the pieces together to try and figure out what is the best way that he can manage this for his advantage. He tries to leverage the curiosity that brought the Magi to his kingdom. But Herod, there must be some way that I can leverage this to my own benefit. And I believe there are people all around us that want to leverage Christmas for their own benefit. How can I manipulate that person? How can I manipulate that situation? Um, I I watched a television show um, a couple nights ago, and the whole story was how a jury is more generous in the days leading up to Christmas, and they're full of the Christmas spirit. And so the attorney wanted the court proceedings to conclude before Christmas where he could leverage the kindness of the Christmas spirit that the jury would then acquit his client. The Oscar goes to because there are people all around us who are trying to leverage Christmas for their own benefit. But a little bit later in verse 16, we're introduced to the real Herod. Some of you remember, and it's been remade, will the real Herod please stand up? It's time to tell the truth. Because... Herod actually was nothing more than a puppet governor with an empire that was as sturdy as a house of cards. The legal authority rested in Caesar and the Senate in Rome. The popular power, the popular majority of the area were the Jews who were deeply committed to their religious leaders. Herod's only power came from his ability to convince Rome and to convince the Jews that he was an advantageous mediator. He tried to convince Rome, hey, I'll take care of those Jews for you. And he tried to convince the Jews, hey, I'll make sure that Rome doesn't come down too hard on you. And so his whole kingdom was built on a a shadow And from this tenuous position, he hears, there's another king of the Jews? He was constantly looking over his shoulder for threats to his reign. If the Jews get a new king, I'm out of a kingdom. If Rome decides I'm not worthy, he loses his kingdom. So he's always looking over his shoulder to wonder who is going to take away his power. A.T. Robertson, Robertson's commentary on Matthew makes three significant points taken from verse 16. All, all of the children in the region were killed. This would not have been a very great number. The population of Bethlehem at this time was about 4,000 people. So the male infants at the time of Herod would hardly go to two score or to 20 people. You think even if we were to double the population of Chase County, how many children under two years old would there be 
in that many people. Well, that was the situation in Bethlehem. And so the historical reality of a massacre cannot be challenged on the ground that Josephus does not give it. You know, there, there are some people who said, this massacre never happened because we don't have any history about it. Well, if you were trying to tell the history of Herod, two dozen babies over here doesn't really contribute to the whole story. Robertson says it was really an insignificant item from the point of view of a student of Herod's career. So he killed all of the boys in that region. Because while Herod was always looking over his shoulder, he would make, take no chances. This child might be hid out in the suburbs. So he killed the babies not only in Bethlehem, but in the region as well. And while he was killing children, he says, well, let's go ahead and pass the edict all the way up to two years old. I know the wise men came. They talked about when they saw the star, but just to be safe, Let's increase the number and we'll kill all the babies, all the male babies under two, just to make sure that we get this one. Just as many in our world are angry and violent against anyone or any idea that reflects the God of the Bible, Herod viewed the Christ as a nuisance, as an obstacle that needed to be silenced. And there are people around us who think the Christian message is a message of hate that needs to be silenced. There are people around us who think the truth of the Bible is old-fashioned. It is archaic. It's out of step and needs to be ignored. But if we stop at verse 12 with Herod and the Magi, we miss the proper focus upon Christ. Because the proper focus is that Mary and Joseph focused on Christ as the nucleus of life. He wasn't simply a novelty to be visited and abandoned. He wasn't simply a nuisance to be eliminated. They saw Christ as worthy of them realigning their life for the good of the child. And when we view Christ as a nucleus of our life, and we reorganize our life for His glory, good things happen. We bring our morality in line with what the Word teaches. We bring our work ethic in line with what the Word teaches. We bring our relationships in line with what the Word teaches. Because Jesus is the nucleus, the center point of life. Now, as I look at the story here in Matthew chapter 2, I see some rather irrational communication. I'm not saying it's false. I'm just saying it's not rational. Just as Mary received a message that would have been hard for Joseph to believe, had the angel not appeared to him, Mary took her divine message that was then supported by Elizabeth's testimony to conclude this child is unique. And then the testimony of shepherds who showed up the night of the birth. 
because angels spoke to them. And then we have the arrival of this political envoy with extravagant gifts. So Mary says, there's nothing normal about this child. And if Joseph says, we need to do something, I trust that the dream that Joseph had came from God himself. So Mary takes Joseph at his word, and they left under the cover of darkness to do whatever God prompted as it related to Jesus. Because they actually had not only irrational communication, but they had immediate obedience in verse 14. I have a dear friend, a pastor of another congregation, who often tells his church, delayed obedience is disobedience. Delayed obedience is disobedience. And Mary and Joseph did not have time to delay Mary didn't have time to confer with Elizabeth and Zacharias to see if they had any confirming sign to this dream. Joseph did not have time to bargain with God like Moses or or to test God like Gideon. For I, I read these words in front of us and I see words like, and now when let us rise, let us flee, because Herod's about to, and by night. I get the sense here that there's a sense of emergency and immediate obedience to what God called them to do. They did what God called, when God called, and they trusted the details to follow later on. And oftentimes that's the way God works. God told Abram to rise and to go to a place that I will show you. He didn't tell Abram where he was going. He simply said, rise and go where I tell you. The route to the promised land was not given until the Israelites obeyed and followed Moses. Do you think if they had chosen their path, that they would have found themselves pinned between Pharaoh's army and the sea? I think that there's a dynamic. Moses says, go, let's follow Moses, and we'll trust him where he leads us. There's a trusting, immediate obedience, and God will fill in the details later. In Joseph's situation, he was told where to go, Egypt. He was told why to go, because Herod's about to get upset, but he was never told how long they would stay there. We don't know how much gold the Magi presented, but it would have been reasonable for Joseph to conclude, well, you know, here's a few coins, here's a lot of coins, I don't know how many coins it was. But it would have been reasonable for Joseph to conclude, this is enough gold, enough money to get us started, And the same God who provided this will provide whatever we need to continue to obey completely. And it's that level of of obedience that God is calling us today. He's not asking you to map out the whole plan. He simply says, will you obey and will you trust that I will provide what you need to obey? Three foci upon Christ at the first Christmas, 
prompts me to ask, what focus does Christ have in your Christmas? What focus does Christ have in your life? Before I was born, about the same time that Youth for Christ and Young Life were founded to evangelize high school students, Campus Crusade was launched in California by a young evangelist from northeast Oklahoma. That evangelist, Bill Bright, wrote a series of books titled Ten Basic Steps Toward Christian Maturity. And early in the first booklet, he describes what he calls the Christ-controlled life. The life that focuses on Christ as the nucleus around which life is ordered. He wrote, there is a throne. There is a control center, the intersection of your intellect, emotions, and will. And it's in every life. And either self or Christ is on that throne. He depicts it this way graphically. You may be here this morning in a circumstance very similar to Herod. This is what Bright labels the natural man. You may be kind or you may be rather gruff. You may have much or very little awareness of the claims and the teaching of Jesus Christ. But the bottom line of the natural man is that you are on the throne of your own life. And Jesus has very little, if any, influence on your decisions. On the other hand, you may be listening today from a position like the Magi. You are well aware of Jesus, of who he was or who he is and what he did, but you are still maintaining control of your life. Self is still on the throne. These learned men were respectful enough to adore Christ and even give extravagant gifts from their wealth. But when they went away, there is no record of Christ making any difference besides a spiritual memory. You may have heard the gospel and invited Christ into your life, but you're still calling the shots. You're still setting the boundaries. Christ is there, but he's not on the throne. However, in Bright's description of the Christ-centered life, he moves on to talk about what God desires for you this morning is the spiritual man. The spiritual man submits his or her thoughts, emotions, and behaviors to be formed by the indwelling and reigning spirit of Christ. Just as Mary and Joseph responded to the heavenly messenger, they relocated until Herod died. The spiritual person willingly aligns what is revealed in God's word, what is prompted by God's spirit. When Christ reigns in one's life, his spirit bears fruit. We then are liberated to experience an even better Christmas when Christ is on the throne of our lives. 
I've got about a 90-second illustration that appeared on the internet this week. It happened on Thursday of this week when a young lady was able to speak at the memorial service of her father, a slain police officer. I've been shot and killed. It will be a day I never forget. I remember having conversations with my dad about him losing friends and officers in the line of duty. I have heard all the stories you can think of, but I've always had such a hard time with how the suspect is dealt with. Not that I didn't think there should be justice served, but my heart always ached for those who don't know Jesus. Their actions being a reflection of that. I was always told that I would feel differently if it happened to me. But as it's happened to my own father, I think I still feel the same. There has been anger, sadness, grief, and confusion. And part of me wishes I could despise the man who did this to my father. But I can't get any, of, any part of my heart to hate him. All that I can find is myself hoping and praying for this man to truly know Jesus. I thought this might change if the man continued to live, but when I heard the news that he was in stable condition, part of me was relieved. My prayer is that someday down the road, I'd get to spend some time with the man who shot my father. Not to scream at him, not to yell at him, not to scold him, simply to tell him about Jesus. That's raw. But that's the illustration of a life where Jesus is upon the throne. Not her own desires, not her own attempt to get revenge, but that the will of God would be accomplished in that other person. My desire for each of us today is that we would experience an even better Christmas by putting Jesus on the throne where he deserves. I'd like to invite Jean to come to the piano at this time, and we're going to sing two, service, two verses of a song that tells us he left his throne of heaven to come to earth, and he asked you this morning, is there room on the throne of your heart for the God of eternity? Let's stand together as we